Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 61. Today, it's all about incredible seaborne operations. Much of this week's episode has been culled from a fantastic book called Iron Fist from the Sea, Top Secret Seaborne Recce Operations, 1978-1988, by Arne Soderlund and Dostein. The South African Navy's reach in those years included all the way up to Kabinda in northern Angola on the west, to Dar es Salaam in Tanzania on the east, these days, we're lucky if the patrols can stretch along our own border, let alone further afield, but that's a topic for another time. The first seaborne operations carried out by the SADF was in 1972, when it targeted Mozambique resistant movement for Limo's training camp in Dar es Salaam, which is over 1,500 nautical miles from Durban, just out of interest. Tanzania's President Julius Nyerere had offered Fulimo support and the South Africans responded to a request by the Portuguese government to plan a clandestine operation. This was to support a Tanzanian foreign minister called Oscar Cambona, who'd fallen out of favour with Nyerere. He wanted to destabilise Tanzania and then blame the violence on Nyerere. The targets, low value and injuries to citizens would be avoided. Eventually, they decided... The targets had actually be high value, called the Port of Dar es Salaam, which means, ironically, the Harbour of Peace. At that time, the Special Forces of the SADF were known as the Operational Experimental Group and based at Oetzhoorn under Commandant Jan Breitenbach. Operation Starlight was a plan that saw a small team being shuttled to a position off the coast of Dar es Salaam by submarine, then they'd paddle to the beach on kayaks. Roads and a few buildings would be mined, then the team would paddle back. Those involved in this first ever raid were Breitenbach, Warrant Officer Trevor Floyd, Staff Sergeants Karnas Konradi and Kurs Moorcroft, and two from the Navy, Warrant Officer Ken Bruin and Chief Petty Officer William Dewey. These Navy crew were highly skilled, both were qualified divers and parabats. They also had advanced skills in navigation, as you can well imagine. In late March 1972, the ship's company of the SAS Emily Hophouse submarine under Lieutenant Commander Woody Woodburn were briefed on board the SAS Dromadaris, where a military intelligence officer warned them the information they were about to receive was uber top secret. And so it remained long after the raid, and this is what happened. Once the training was complete, the kayaks were found to have developed leaks, so the army had to buy civilian clippers, as they were called, from the father of one of the team members. These days, that would be called corruption, but that was those days. The advantage of these civilian kayaks is that they looked like civilian kayaks. The old battered ones were painted army green, whereas these new ones were blue. Another problem for these men was their equipment. One of the team fell overboard while getting out of his kayak during training off Durban, and the large cookery knife, the Tommy gun, which weighed nearly 5 kilograms without its 30-round magazine, and other paraphernalia dragged him underwater. The sub had to cut its engines and the Special Forces soldier rescued or it was the bottom of Davy Jones's locker for him. They changed their firearms to East Block and Country weapons, but of the six carried, only two, which were AK-47s, were post-Second World War, while the Russian SKS semi-automatic rifle and PPSH-41 submachine guns were designed during World War I. But they were 1.5 kilograms lighter than the Tommy gun. Then the Navy balked at sending one of these subs so close inshore, eventually agreeing to stand off 20 nautical miles. Breitenbach pointed out that paddling 20 nautical miles, or around 38 kilometers one way, laying mines and paddling back in one night was pushing the paddling envelope, particularly 
if there was a heavy sea or wind or both. Woodburn had a separate meeting with Bradenbach where he basically ignored his own commander's orders and said he'd bring the sub much closer into shore. Wink, wink. Bradenbach said later that he thought Woodburn had what he called a Nelson touch, and of course Bradenbach was an ex-naval officer himself, serving the fleet air arm of the British Royal Navy from 1955 to 1961. By late May 1972, they sailed off in the Emily Hobhouse, or Emily for short, with its crew believing it was just another normal exercise and patrol. Once at sea, the navigational readouts were kept secret, and all chart work was done by Navigator Lieutenant Commander Reno Hartz, not the officer on the watch. After a week, the crew of the Emily found they were in Nakala in Mozambique and secured alongside a Portuguese Navy corvette. Six senior officers embarked on the Emily from the Portuguese vessel, including Second World War vet Fritz Lutz, who was ex-director of South African military intelligence. The Emily sailed shortly afterwards. On the 11th of June 1972, the sub closed in on the port of Dar es Salaam to conduct periscope reconnaissance. They headed through a series of dangerous reefs, evaded the fishing boats, and then that night surfaced about five nautical miles out. The Navy top brass would have had a fit if they knew. At half past nine that night, the sub on its electric engines reached three nautical miles off the port and through the periscope. The commander spotted the Kanondani lighthouse the kayaks would use as the run-in to the beach at Msimbazi Bay. The operators climbed into their kayaks and hit the beach in less than an hour thanks to Woody Woodburn's flouting of the rules. The two Navy divers remained behind on the beach ready to provide support, and the four operators in civilian clothing then moved up the road carrying their heavy holdalls. They were going to mine the Salander Bridge over the Msimbazi estuary that linked the residential area north of Dar es Salaam to the commercial centre and the harbour. After a few hours, they were now in full view of the early morning traffic when they laid their charges, but no one paid them any attention. Then they mined a power pylon. And finally, the four walked down Independence Avenue and spotted a black Rolls Royce placing a mine under its engine. The operators withdrew to the beach, then all six pushed off, the three kayaks of two men each heading back to the sub. The wind was behind their backs and they made good time out to sea, but when they arrived at the Emily pickup point, the sub was gone. The kayaks now drifted eastwards out to sea. It was 4.30 a.m., sunrise two hours away. Then, thankfully, the sub surfaced, snorting through its air-operated head valve. As they moved off, the Emily somehow snagged a small fishing boat. Its net was being dragged below. The boat was also waterlogged. Eventually, two divers had to cut the boat loose. Meanwhile, the officers were monitoring local radio and heard that the blasts had caused panic and destroyed the British High Commissioner's Rolls Royce. No one had been killed or wounded. They returned to Cape Town after an epic six weeks, with the newspapers running stories that three blasts had damaged the bridge, while the British High Commissioner's Rolls had been at the wrong place at the wrong time. The SADF were happy about this. They planned to bomb Tanzania's main oil refinery shortly afterwards, but after a number of attempts gave that up. They had a litany of breakdowns and made mistakes, including planning one of the attacks on the day of an OAU meeting in Dar es Salaam, which meant the air and sea space was far too busy. Defence Minister P.W. Boota thought they'd managed to get away with the attempted attack on Tanzanian oil refineries without notice, but then found out, through British intelligence, that the Tanzanians had spotted a Canberra that was overflying and set up 
an anti-aircraft missile battery to the east of the harbour entrance at Kigamboni Point. There would be no more attacks there, but all of these events gave the SADF tactical thinkers a big idea. There was an urgent need for a special force, and on the 30th of August 1972, a letter was signed authorising the creation of a new permanent force unit to be known as One Reconnaissance Commando, or One Recce to its friends and its enemies. Commandant Jan Breitenbach was its first officer commanding when it was established on the 1st of October 1972. They didn't mess around in those days. Letter ordering the start of One Recce received end August. One Recce set up a month later. The unit was based on the concept of the British and Rhodesian Special Air Service, the SAS, but Reconnaissance Commando was chosen to hide its purpose. Eventually, a Reserve Citizen Force unit was set up called Two Reconnaissance Commando. Things moved more slowly until Operation Savannah in 1975, which proved there was a need for Special Forces operational units and proper training. While that op was underway, a sub-unit for seaborne operations was set up at Salisbury Island in the middle of Durban Harbour in March 1976. It was a modest start. Major Malcolm Kinghorn was OC. He had one senior NCO and two six-man teams. The senior staff officer special operations structure then developed into a full-blown Special Forces HQ with Air Force and Navy officers attached. Three Reconnaissance Commando was formed in May 1976, at least on paper, and would use Special Forces members for tasks outside of one recce's scope. When the dust from Savannah settled, the SADF knew it had to set up Special Forces for each of the airborne, maritime and then intelligence ops. One recce in Durban was assigned airborne and urban anti-terrorist operations. Two recce in Pretoria was a unit on paper to be used for special tasks. Three recce was also based in Pretoria and was also a paper section at first to assign personnel when and where necessary and was largely non-operational. Four recce in Langabarn in the Western Cape would conduct maritime spec ops and five recce in Dukuduku, northern Natal, would work with allied guerrilla forces such as Renamo of Mozambique. They moved to Palaboa by 1980. Things changed quite radically in that year because Robert Mugabe came to power in Zimbabwe and a large number of Salu scouts and SAS operators moved to South Africa. The Salus ended up in three recce and a new unit, six recce, was established to take in the SAS operators. Then both sets of specialists, were absorbed into one, two, and three recce after a while. By 1981, special forces were formed under direct command of the chief of the SADF and were now regarded as extremely important strategic assets. Direct action missions would predominate, but they'd also be heavily involved in strategic intelligence gathering, disrupting enemies' command and control, logistics, and high-valued target destruction. The big problem at first was that virtually no one could pass the demanding tests to join. The success rate hovered between 5 and 16%, and these tests were only physical. Various studies then conducted by the SADF revealed they were wasting their time by focusing exclusively on the physical tests. They needed operators with IQs above 115, and that immediately excluded 80% of the population. Emotional intelligence tests were also initiated, so by the early 1980s, the criteria for applicants changed. There was now a one-week pre-selection phase instead of the three-week course. Smaller groups were involved and applicants were able to retrain and given a second opportunity. 
Following selection, they'd have four weeks of light infantry training and the troops would be closely monitored for how they handled pressure, how their energy levels worked, self-motivation, task management, judgment, initiative and adaptability and how they worked in a team. Following this more scientific approach, the dropout rates fell to around 25%. Eventually, there would be a final three-day selection phase and around 70% past that. Sometimes the number did slide to 50%, but that's better than 5%. The recce rookie candidates would then begin proper training, which would take eight months basic operators course at one recce, including parachuting, water orientation, drop zones, bushcraft, tracking, survival, and rural and urban warfare tactics. If they passed all of the courses, the new recce would be appointed to a team, usually in the slot that matched areas in which they had performed best during training. Later, they could choose further specialised training. Obscuring what was going on from prying eyes was one of the major challenges the recce faced. The sailors and the submariners would take note when the special forces rocked up. They knew they were in for a few interesting weeks. It was up to four reconnaissance commando to undertake most of these special forces seaborne operations, and they started with a few kayaks and the small Zodiac Mark II inflatable boat at Salisbury Island in Durban Harbour. In 1979, it moved to Langebein and was turned into a multiracial organisation. Delivering the recce's to their targets was the SA Navy with its all-important Daphne-class French submarines. The SAS Maria van Riebeck, Emily Hobhouse, both arrived in 1971, then SAS Johanna van der Merwe in 1972. They patrolled up to 28 days along the coast with a range of 4,000 nautical miles, and they were just in time because the SADF had a few projects in mind. We'll get back to that in a moment. Then in 1975, six Reshev-class missile-armed fast attack craft were bought from the Israelis. It was these two forms of delivery systems, the Reshev P-boats and the subs, that are going to interest us the most in the next couple of podcasts, as you hear about the spec ops conducted through the next few years. We'll catch up to 1982 as we go. The subs were based at SAS Hugo Birman, which was a nine-story complex in Simonstown. With a crew of 45, there was barely room for anyone else on the submarine, particularly since they used the hot bunk system, rotating bunks based on shifts. Equipment was the biggest headache. The operators could fit into a tiny space, but their boats and other paraphernalia couldn't. So now we turn to the earliest seaborne operations after the Tanzanian outing, which was called Grosser. They were going to reconnoiter the area around Mokamides, or Namibe, as it's known today, along with Porto Alexandre, or Tombwa today, and Baia dos Tigres in Angola. Eight members of four recce were selected under Major Malcolm Kinghorn and included a doctor who'd handled possible casualties on board the sub. SAS Emily Hobhouse under Commander Dolph Oyer was the delivery sub, and this was classified top secret. On midnight on the 28th of May, 1979. The team boarded the Emily at Saldana Bay and then headed off to Mokamidis, which took eight days sailing. They arrived there at 0400 hours on the 4th of June and tried to make out the port through the periscope, but the thick mist hindered things. Eventually, the fog lifted and the sub entered the bay at 1400 hours, taking photos through the periscope, then withdrawing off the Giral River mouth north of the port. They were looking for landing sites and after dark surfaced and launched the two Zodiac Mark II inflatables. The Rekis checked the north of the ore-exporting quay, 
then moved south with one group landing about 500 meters south of that key. After checking out the Bero River and the Mokamides Harbor area, they rendezvoused with the sub at 0200 hours, dragging their boats on board and stowing them, and the Emily withdrew out to sea. The reconnaissance was a success, and they'd learned something important. As Doe Stain points out, they saw that the western end of the ore key and ore loading area was well lit, while the rest of the key was not, and the pier there was low enough to be climbed from small zodiacs. Beach landings were better at Porto Salazar and the Bero River mouth because there was no cover closer to Mokamides. On to the Giral River mouth where the zodiacs were launched again. This time two swimmers conducted reconnaissance of the beach who saw high cliffs on both sides of the river. The only access here was the floodplain with little cover for 100 meters from the surf to the scrub. One of the Rickies was prepping his AK-47 in the forward mess of the sub a little later and somehow let off a burst of four rounds. No one was hit. He received a written warning. More recons were conducted of Porto Alexandre and here Soviet fishing trawlers were spotted. Once the usual photographs were taken and the two teams had done their work, the Emily continued south to Bayadosh Tigrish, arriving on the 8th of June. There were even more Soviet trawlers around that bay, 16 were counted. That night the Zodiacs hit the sea once again and two swimmers checked for landing areas and a foot patrol was conducted to the inner bay. It was time now to head home. The first major recon ended on the 12th of June when the submarines arrived at Vulpus Bay. The next major special operation was already underway. The SAS Johanna van der Merwe and her commander Evert Grunewald sailed up the east coast on the 15th of June, part of Operation Extend. Similar to Grosser, the idea was to recon the east coast around Nakala and Porto de Mozambique in the north of the country. Intelligence gathering was the aim because the SADF had been told by the Rhodesians that equipment was being landed at Nakala and possibly Porto de Mozambique to be used by Robert Mugabe's Zapu, the precursor to ZANU. It was strictly a seaward recon. No landings were planned and four recce under Warrant Officer Chili Duplessis and Lieutenant Doc Buck joined the Johanna at Durban on the 19th of June where the sub was bunkered and more water was taken on board. The Rhodesians were going to conduct aerial recon along the coast in a Canberra at the same time and the days agreed were the 27th of June to the 5th of July for possible sea rescue should the plane be shot down or experience technical difficulties and the crew had to eject. Johanna took up position on the 1st of July carrying out periscope runs and photo shoots taking notes of shipping movements. The Soviet flag was flying at Nagala airport and some reports indicated they were assembling MiG aircraft there. After a few more days of photos and recon offshore, the sub headed home and arrived in Durban on the 6th of July. These were low-level ops, but the SADF had an escalation in mind and it involved the assassination of Robert Mugabe at his residence in Maputo. It was known as Operation Lark. The SADF were going to support an eight-man team of the Rhodesian SAS as they went after the Zapu leader, mainly because he had refused to begin peace negotiations with Salisbury. Mugabe's Maputo residence was in a plush residential area around 500 meters from the beach, and the Rhodesians had been monitoring him for some time. The plan was for four recce to land the raiding team from a submarine once the Maputo spy confirmed the target would be home, and the attack was scheduled for November 1978. 
We'll hear more about what happened next in episode 62. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps escalate the visibility of the story. If you have any comments, head over to my website, abwarpodcast.com. There's a link to send emails if you want to chat. And you can direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.